When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, Brandon Harvey here. Before we get started, I just wanted to share some really exciting news. Exactly one year ago, this week, we launched our Kickstarter for The Good Newspaper. We had set out to create a physical newspaper that celebrated the people, ideas, and movements shaping the world for the better. And I remember waking up the morning that we were going to launch the Kickstarter and just feeling so incredibly nervous. What if this didn't work? What if this failed? What if nobody cared about this idea as much as me? But fortunately, I didn't have to stay nervous for long because within 52 hours, we were fully funded on Kickstarter. And just a few short months later, we had shipped tens of thousands of copies of the good newspaper around the world. Oh my gosh, it's wild thinking about everything that we've done over the last year. We've ironed out so many kinks and we've spent a lot of time dreaming up the amazing things that will come with year two. And we loved launching the Good Newspaper on Kickstarter. It was such a fun place to bring everybody together, but the only bummer with Kickstarter is that it only allowed us to fund year one of the Good Newspaper. In fact, everybody who subscribed for year one, their subscriptions automatically expire at the end of year one. It can't roll over. And that's why we are so excited that today, a year after the launch of year one of the newspaper, we are launching the ability to subscribe for year two of the good newspaper. I am so excited for all of the things that we have to come, and I would love for you to join us. To subscribe to year two of the good newspaper, just go to goodnewspaper.org slash year two. You can write out the number or write it out either way goodnewspaper.org slash year two. And the good news is, as a thank you for your support, we are offering the first 500 people who subscribe for year two 20% off their total order. And that's really, really exciting, but also those spots are going to go really fast. So make sure you check out the site as soon as you listen to this and use promo code year two at checkout. I'm so incredibly thankful for all of your support. I'm so excited for the things to come in year two. One more time, it is goodnewspaper.org slash year two with promo code year two. Okay, now here's the show. I think there's this temptation for all of us to believe that we're not merely products of our past, but prisoners of it. However, this can't be a good way to live, right? We're our own worst critics and we forget how beautiful and, more than that, powerful our past experiences can be, whether they're wonderful or tragic. And honestly, I'm starting to try to lean into this idea that one of our greatest adventures in our own journey might have to do with finally meeting ourselves, facing ourselves, and learning to live with who we've become. And one step further, believing in a future beyond what we could ask for or imagine. My guest today, Allie Nelson, has a lot to say about how coming to grips with our past has a lot to do with unlocking the beautiful, messy gift of our present selves and the future stories we'll be able to tell. Allie Nelson is the multidisciplinary artist behind the well-known and well-loved Instagram handle and company, 
Ali makes things. What sets her apart in the world of art and even Instagram is how much she's gone through. And spoiler alert, it is a lot. From wrestling her whole life with anxiety and depression, an early divorce, great loss, a tragic car accident, and a brain injury that stole her words, among so many other things, her story has led her to this place of creating beautiful things out of her pain, tragedy, and heartbreak. Using colors, shapes, and dimensions to say things she's always hoped she would. As a part of her work, Allie partners with numerous nonprofits she believes in and has had amazing clients like American Greetings, Shutterfly, Warner Brothers, and even the Pope. (laughs) I am Brendan Harvey, and this is Sounds Good. This is the weekly podcast where we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. I'm so excited about this conversation, so let's get started. First of all, welcome to Nashville. Thank you so much. How has your time in Nashville been so far? So good. I always love coming to town. It's fun. You're in Atlanta, right? Yeah, right now I'm in Atlanta. So four hours away. Four hours away. It's great. I One time I was going to Atlanta and I did not account for the time change. And I also thought that Atlanta was like two and a half hours away. (laughs) It was when I first moved to Nashville. And I was very late for the meeting I was going to. Oh, no. Yeah, I did that one time for a uh, fundraiser and I showed up an hour late to oh my this, gosh. Like, really great fundraiser. Oh my gosh. Well, it happens. <laughs> yeah. Where are you from originally? I'm from Northern California. Okay. Yeah. Where at? I say in between uh, San Francisco and Tahoe. It's uh, really outside of Sacramento in the foothills, <laughs> but I try not to claim Sacramento super hard. Did you, saw, did you see Lady Bird? <laughs> okay. I haven't yet. I really need to. I am They rep Sacramento yeah. super hard. I know. I saw the trailer and I recognize a bunch of places in it, so I am excited to do that. But she wasn't super stoked on Sacramento either, right? Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. it's there's, there's something kind of romantic and yeah. beautiful about a town that you don't love. Totally. I actually grew up in this tiny, like, little mountain town called, um, they call it the Gem of the Foothills. That's our town wow. motto. So I'm very prideful about I, our small town. I grew up in the lentil capital of the world, so I'm also Wait, the lentil? Lentil capital of <laughs> the world. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. We grow mandarins there for, oh. like, you know, like, little oranges. Yeah. Um, not cuties or tangerines. They're mandarins, and they're a whole other breed. There's wow. something special. But your town was really small. Super tiny. One what, stoplight town. That's amazing. What was your What was the culture of the town like? Super supportive. Um, a lot of, um, I mean, Little League and small, just, I mean, we had... There's a sandwich shop that is, like, the most famous thing. People (laughs) stop there on the way up to go to the mountains when they go snowboarding. And um, that's kind of what we're known for. We have a Denny's, two gas stations, park and ride. There's an elementary school, K through 8, 52 kids in my graduating class. Wow. Wait, so why did your parents live in that town then? What did they do for work? Um, My dad's actually a rice farmer. Wow. And he's built homes. He built every home that I had grown up living in until I moved out. And so there was three homes that I lived in that he had built, which was a really interesting way of, I don't know, having your childhood home be a place that you saw your dad actually build from the ground up. Totally. Um, And then my mom stayed home with us. She uh, is plays a lot of tennis. She's actually nationally ranked. She just played in the national championship what? recently. Yeah, That's she's really unreal. Good. It is. It's funny. <laughs> That's incredible. What did your childhood feel like then in this in this small town where your dad is 
a rice farmer and you've got one stoplight and your mom loves tennis. Yeah, we played outside a ton. Um, we were, I grew up very conservatively. We went to a church that, I mean, everyone, it was kind of on the extremist side of okay. like fundamentalists. And did so. you know it at the time? Did you have any clue? No, I didn't. Um, my mom actually became a Christian when I was born. And so she had decided that she wanted to raise us in faith, but that had never really been a part of her story before. So I think sometimes when you do that, you have the tendency to just jump in fully. Yeah, you really, you almost like overcompensate for yeah. the sinful life you used to totally. live. Totally. <laughs> and like she grew up, you know, in a family that she felt was pretty dysfunctional. So mm. then when you do that, I think you do try to compensate and you might go the other direction. A lot more stability. Yeah. But I had no idea what we were doing. It wasn't exactly like a normal version of like church life. So. We were the only public schooled family in our church, and everybody else like wore their skirts to the floor, never cut their hair, like you know wore head coverings, and so all you of were that's still great. Like, but we uh, were just not that family. We yeah. were like this kind of random family that was a part of this church. Didn't watch TV, didn't listen to the radio, huh. didn't do any of that. I read a lot of books as a kid. <laughs> wow. Okay. And so, what was it like being somebody who is a part of this subculture, but also? It sounds like you were the only one in your subculture going to public school. You know, what was school like for you? Um, I mean, school was everything to me. I was so social and I, I loved school. That was my favorite place to be. I wanted to go there and do all the schoolwork. And I was I was so ecstatic about that always. But, um, yeah, I don't think I really realized that I was a part of this other subculture yeah. until I grew up later. It definitely influenced the way that I viewed morality and lived my life and everything was very black and white for a long time. Yeah. But I also had kind of some normalcy with my friends from school and that life as well. Was there a moment where you started to kind of realize that you were in a, a subculture? Almost every church that I, we went to when I was growing up split. And so huh. uh, it was really interesting. Like we my family started going to this Baptist church when I was in eighth grade. And when that happened, it felt like it was a lot more progressive. And I started seeing a little bit more of culture and like the outside world. But I didn't really realize how small our town was even growing up. It all just was very normal yeah. and idyllic in of so course. many ways. And, you know, it's growing up sports, playing sports, going to school, just all of that kind of stuff was what filled our lives. What did you think that you were going to do when you grew up? Um, it's really funny. I just went through my some attic, like the attic at my parents' house, and we had a bunch of boxes laying around where it – I found this thing that when I was in – preschool, kindergarten. And I said that I wanted to be an archaeologist mm. and a scientist and also an artist and a writer. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to be kind of a lot of things. Do you feel like your parents were supportive of those things? Yeah, definitely. I think they told me I could really be whatever I wanted. I don't know that I pursued any of those yeah. things necessarily, but it was always kind of like, yeah, join this club, do this, you know, go be in theater. Let's take yeah. you to after school programs and that sort of thing. So what did you, when you were getting ready to graduate from high school, what did you think you were going to do? Like I what was your no next idea. step? Yeah, okay. I had no idea what I wanted but to do. But you went to college. I did, but not initially after high school. Okay. When I was a senior in high school, I remember all of my friends were applying to colleges and I was freaking out because I'm the oldest of three girls and my parents look back at that time now and kind of wonder why they weren't more 
I don't know why they didn't push me more hmm. to go and to kind of check out colleges and that sort of thing. I think it was new to them, too. Yeah. And so they didn't really know how that process looked. And I remember being in like my senior year looking at schools and I was looking at FITM in San Francisco and thinking like, maybe I'll go into fashion design and merchandising. Like, maybe I could do something like that. And I started kind of putting together a portfolio, but I never did anything with it. And I was terrified and I never, I never applied anywhere. So I got through the end of high school, hadn't applied anywhere for college, freaking out. I like wrote someone from the summer camp that I grew up going to as a kid. And they, um, they kind of were like, we don't have any program positions left, but you could work in the dining hall. Oh. And so I did, and I actually loved it. It was like the wow. best summer of my life. But that was kind of what I did after high school. I just jumped into camp. I worked in churches. I went back thinking, okay, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. Maybe I'll work in the church. Maybe I will, you know, do youth programs. I had refed a lot of um, sports teams. I was a volleyball coach. I had done that kind of stuff. And so I always cared about, like, social justice issues, and I thought maybe this was a way I could give back and be involved in my community. But I really had no idea what the long-term goal was. It was a couple years later when I was encouraged to maybe, like, apply to a college program, and I I got into it that way. Um, But it was a couple years later, and it was an accelerated program. It was something that I just jumped in to try to do, and um, that's kind of how I ended up getting my degree. It wasn't really aligned with what you thought— you were doing, or, or was it? What Did it kind of pivot? I, I was open to going to college, but at the time I wasn't sure at all what I wanted to do. And so it felt like one of those things that, sure, like, okay, I'll go. This seems like a good thing. I probably will want a degree in the future. Um, so I started taking classes, and I went with the intention of doing, like, social science and psychology But I took a gangs and gang behavior class, Mm. and it was super fascinating. And we got to go on a prison tour for every part of the semester. They were, like, accelerated classes. So, like, each nine-week period, we got to go on a prison tour. So I ended up going on, like, ten different prison tours being completely fascinated with what like prisons this, oh my gosh so many in california there did you was, go to san quentin no i wish that okay. was the only one that was he actually took classes to san quentin but i missed that in the whole oh, lineup man. but funny. we took we went to one and i forget um what it i think cmf it's like california medical or mental facility and i actually met a serial killer there Wow. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, that was, I mean, it was super fascinating, which is why I kept going down this path Um, when I went there. And you really see people for, it's like a different slice of life, which I'm endlessly curious about so many different things. But when I got to see what life was like in prison, it was fascinating in a way that I just had never had access to before. Yeah. So I was contrasting all these experiences you'd had growing up. Oh, completely. It's like this whole other world. When you grow up in such a small town and everything's idyllic and, you know, peaceful and beautiful and there's nothing that, no crime, nothing ever really goes wrong in these kind of towns. Or so you think. And um, then all of a sudden you're in prison and seeing people who are outside of what you know, and it expands your worldview a little bit. Yeah. So around this time, you met somebody, right? Yeah. So when I was working at the church um, on youth staff, I was working with junior hires, and I ran into a guy I used to go to high school with. And I remember kind of being like, I'm, I don't know, I liked him, he was great, but... Um, 
we ended up getting married, and I don't think that's usually how that's supposed to go. Like, he that, was great, and then we got married. Yeah, normally the story doesn't go, <laughs> yeah, he seemed nice, and, and then we got married. Totally. There's and a little bit more to it usually. Yeah, exactly. And, w- and there wasn't more to it. Um, We dated for long enough where there should have been more to it, but I was young, and I honestly really had how no idea. How old were you at the time? Um, We met when I was 18. Or, okay. Well, we got reacquainted when I was 18. Okay. And so we ran into each other. And started dating at that point. And when that happened, it was like, well, I don't really know what I'm doing with my life. And he wants to be a youth pastor and I'm on youth staff. And I just really didn't know how to like discern my own voice and like what was the, what I wanted for myself. And so I kind of just went along with this, even though there was something inside me the whole time saying like, this really isn't the right thing for mm. me. And I felt like the more I got into it, the harder it felt to get out of it. And everybody around us was so encouraging. Yeah. And do you think that that was because of the subculture that you'd grown up in? Definitely. And I think, you know, I think people want to be supportive. That's the other thing. I don't think there's anything that's really ill intentions about it necessarily. But when you're around people who have a similar belief system they're like oh my gosh like you love God and you love God and like you guys are so great together he's so nice and like this will you guys will be so good together and you're like okay I guess this is maybe what God wants for my whole life Hmm. you know and I I had a lot of reservations but um I just kind of kept going with it I felt like I got further and further down that path and I didn't know how to get out of it and were you actively aware that you didn't know how to get out of it? Or did you kind of just like not trust those reservations? I just, I definitely didn't trust them. I felt like, okay, maybe, I mean, growing up in such a conservative culture, I, I learned a lot of the verses that tell you, you know, like, okay, you can't trust your heart. You are, you know, like God has a plan for your life. And maybe there's something, maybe God calls it to sacrifice. So like these were my thought processes as I went into it. And it's like marriage isn't about you, like dying to myself. What is my purpose in life? All of these like flashing thoughts went through my head during that time. And it was like, okay, like God brought this person into my life. Like this is what I'm supposed to do. Who am I to disrupt this plan? I can just, you know what? It's fine. I will just do this forever. Mm. And I freaked out pretty hard right before the wedding. I also, I mean, I remember when he proposed, like, thinking, I should not be saying yes to this. Oh, wow. Yeah, like, it was throughout the whole process. You know, from first kiss to the wedding day, I, like, I felt reservations throughout the whole thing. But I just really doubted myself. I had no idea how to trust those, that you know, that voice. I felt like that was my own spirit speaking and not, you know, not something that was actual truth. And I didn't know how to tell the difference between those things. So what does it feel like then when you wake up and you're you're married and you still feel that sense of maybe this isn't right? You know, what is that like? Yeah, it was devastating. I mean, waking up, it was soul crushing in a slow way like it it felt like I was slowly dying was there any joy within that time yeah definitely and that was what made it so difficult and I think you know in the early years after we got divorced it was easy to look at those kinds of things as very black and white still like oh all of that was bad the further distance I get from it the more I look at it like 
that's what makes anything we experience difficult. It's the gray area. It's mm. not the black and white. It wasn't just a horrible marriage. There was so many things that were great. We never fought. We were such good friends. We liked doing life together in a lot of ways. But we were really young. And it was also something that I had never felt like I really should do. And so when I look back at that time, we had a lot of fun in so many different ways. Yeah. It just felt like it wasn't the life that I was supposed to live and that I just had made decisions without really, like, understanding what they were. And growing up the way that I had, that was devastating to me. And Because divorce was very off the table. Oh, yeah. It was not an option. And so I remember thinking, like, okay, like— divorce is not an option, so what am I going to do? And, like, it just got harder and harder. Yeah, what were those first few years like of of wrestling with that? It was interesting, and I, kept, I think we kept ourselves really distracted. We were really young, and so, I mean, I was barely 21 when we got married. We bought a ring on my 20th birthday kind of by accident. It was, I mean, it was my birthday, 20th birthday. We parked in front of this estate jewelry shop that was having a sale, and we went in and just kind of like bought a ring on a whim. We weren't looking. It yeah. wasn't anything like wow. that. And we just kind of bought a ring. And I had money left over for my high school graduation. Oh, my god! I mean, it's ridiculous. Like, looking back, I, I think about it and I'm like, oh. Like, I, I feel compassion for 20-year-old me, barely 20-year-old me. But at the same time, like, at that point, I kind of felt like, okay, like, how do I figure out the rest of my life? What does it look like to be an adult and to grow up and to start making adult decisions? And I don't know what I'm doing, so, like, maybe this is a good pathway. And this feels like it's at least, you know, aligned with the kinds of things that I care about. We kept ourselves really distracted those first couple years that we were married. We always had roommates from two weeks after we got married till the very end. Do you think that your husband was feeling it too or? I don't know. Like I, he definitely told me that he didn't feel the same way. And so that's what made it really hard. I Mm. felt like he was in denial of a lot of it, um, which makes it really difficult because I'm like, I'm experiencing this thing and you're not. And I think that's so many relationships where like when you feel that kind of, um, I don't know, just like that separation between what you're experiencing and what someone else is experiencing, it's really hard to find, figure out like what the truth is. And that was the most disorienting thing about it. I had no idea what truth is. I'm like, am I going crazy here? Like, am I off? Like, am I, what is, what's wrong? You know? And I didn't know how to bring it back into a place that felt like it was actually healthy we always had people at our house. We had the most eclectic group of characters that lived with us. And it was a bunch of like disillusioned youth that were hanging out around a fire pit. And I don't know like if you've ever experienced this, but like kind of the post-church world experiences where everybody's sitting around and kind of talking crap about church and like, (laughs) you know, trying to figure out like what you believe. And it's questioning for the first time. But we're doing that collectively all the time. You're, like, deconstructing mm -hmm, everything. Totally. Deconstructing everything that you've ever believed because you don't know why you believe it. And I think there's some really beautiful things to that. Yeah. There's something really healthy about unpacking and saying, okay, why do I believe in this? Absolutely. And that goes on for – I mean, I think you can do that for a while before it becomes unhealthy. Yeah. But then there's a certain point where you're, like – Nothing good is coming of this, and we are just in this, like, downward spiral black hole of, you know, like, everybody's kind of adding to everybody else, and this is no longer—it's becoming toxic. Yeah. And Mm. so it became a really toxic place that, um, 
you know, we all kind of lost some of our faith in that in that space and were creating what our world beliefs were in other ways. And it was it's definitely like a coming of age story, you know, like yeah. at that point where you're just kind of sitting around and it, it was interesting. Like one of the guys in our group was this like NBA player who was also struggling with his career and like really trying to figure out life and, you know, relying a lot on alcohol at the time to do it. And so we were like smoking cigars that cost more than our cars at that point. Oh my God. So we were like sitting around living this weird dichotomy of life where it's like, we're 22 years old smoking (laughs) $16,000 cigars that we didn't even know like existed prior in some prior life and not knowing what we were going to do with ourselves or the rest of our futures and not really even holding jobs that we cared about doing anything that we cared about. So it felt um, confusing to say the least. (laughs) Was there a breaking point that came? Yeah, there was a series of things that all happened within a pretty short amount of time. And those were the things that, like, really woke me up. I think that it was easy to sleepwalk for a couple of years. I mean, it. I became more and more depressed. And, um, and did you experience depression before? Yeah, depression and anxiety have been a long part of my story. Um, I don't think that I really realized to what extent what, until then. Okay, so it wasn't kind of in your full consciousness. Depression was. Okay. Um, yeah, depression had always been a part of my life. Like, I remember being 12 years old and feeling angsty wow. for the first time and sitting in my room at, you know, at night and contemplating, like, self-harm and, like, things like that and just, you know, like, figuring out what that looked like. And, um, and that I, was probably hard in the community you were in, too, de- because it, it's not this picture-perfect experience that definitely. is kind of expected. Yeah, and I don't think my parents really knew what to do with that either. It's I can't like, imagine most parents do. Yeah, I think that when you're 12 years old and really like everything's being provided for you and really you have a really wonderful life on so many levels like my parents are amazing people and so when you know that's going on in your family but you don't exactly know like how to explain this darkness that's inside or this isolation that you feel it's difficult to try to figure out how to get out of it. And so I just kind of dealt with it. I felt like I was managing it. And that was my that was my tactic for a really long time mm. was just managing this, uh, you know, this depression and feeling like I could handle it. I understood what that looked like and I knew how to, like, really just get through life without anybody knowing that I was experiencing that. But um, during our marriage, it was about two and a half years in and – a couple things happened. We had a friend, a close friend, who got killed in a tragic car accident. Wow. And I was, you know, 22 at the time. And I think that when you experience the loss of life of someone who is so incredibly close to you and someone who has more vibrancy and life than you've ever seen in a human, and when that's taken suddenly and prematurely, it jolts you wide awake in a way that you don't otherwise understand and it that was the beginning of all of these things for me yeah our friend Cassie when she was killed it was like I just remember that being the breaking point that was the moment where I I walked inside after getting that phone call I walked outside and remember like getting that phone call and when I walked back inside the house it felt like everything had changed 
Um, We had a group of people that were there, my then husband and a couple friends, and everybody was watching the real world on TV. And I remember just it feeling like this really shallow existence. And I walked in having experienced like what was probably the worst news of my life to that point. And it was like no one noticed that I had just received that news. So it felt even more isolating in the moment to feel like no one knew me in this place that I felt like I should have had like full, I don't know, experience of being known. And um, the second thing that happened was that we were hit by a drunk driver coming back from a John Mayer concert. And we, it was one of those perfect summer nights. Everyone was sitting outside at the John Mayer concert. And and this is after your friend had died. Yes. And it was not, it was a couple months after, so it was still pretty new. Um, And I remember sitting in the passenger seat of this car and I knew the back roads because it was close to like where my dad had farmed. And so most people were going one direction and it was totally backed up. And so I was like, oh, we can take these back roads. It'll be great. And we were making a left-hand turn, a 90-degree turn, and we narrowly missed being hit by a car that was trying to pass, like, five cars behind us. And so they were speeding by at about 80 miles an hour, and we stopped in the middle of the road to avoid being hit by them, and we weren't. But there was another car that was following them, and they just teed us. Wow. And they flipped and went down into a ditch, went up, hit a telephone pole, got wrapped in a fence, And it was, I mean, it was one of those very surreal experiences where you're kind of outside your body watching your life unfold in this strange way. And I remember walking back through some of the cars and having someone say, like, whoa, did anyone make it? And I had this own, you know, my own version of this wide awake experience where I realized that it could have been me in that moment and trying to figure out, like, what that meant. Um, I also didn't realize that at that time, I how hard I had hit my head. Yeah, and what did you, immediately afterwards, did you go to the hospital? What was the story then? I think I was in shock. It was a very weird reaction. I was in the passenger seat, and the people that I was with were all younger than me. Okay. So I immediately went into this, like, strange, like, caretaking mode. Yeah. And the car that had hit us tried to drive off, and even though they were, like, wrapped in a fence and didn't realize that they could. Um, so they tried to get out of there. And so I immediately hopped out of the car. I had a camera at the time and I started taking pictures of the scene. Oh my gosh. It was just a very weird reaction, you know? And I was making sure everybody else was okay, checking in the other car. And And everybody else was okay? Everybody was fine. The girl had a broken nose and so she was kind of a mess, but I was like taking care and making sure everybody else was fine. And I remember, like, my family was all um, on vacation at the time, and I wasn't. I remember calling them and having this very odd sense of peace as I was just saying, like, hey, I was in a really bad car accident, and um, I don't know if I should go to the hospital. Should I go to the hospital? <laughs> and my parents, who were nowhere near, are like, I don't know. Do you do you need to? Like, yeah. and I didn't know how to even answer that for myself. I think I had become so distant from knowing myself. Knowing, really? Wow. Yeah, like I didn't even know if I should go to the hospital. And was that – do you think that was directly because of the accident or was that just the place in life you were? That's the place in life I was in at You that just point. weren't connected to at all. what your needs were. Nope, not at all. I had no idea. I didn't know how to ask for – any kind of needs. I didn't know how to vocalize them. I felt like I had lost my voice in so many ways by that point. And 
I just really had no idea what I should do. It was very, it was disorienting. And it was a moment that like showed me how lost I truly was. Wow. So I went to the hospital and, you know, I remember it was good. (laughs) It's probably a good choice. Um, But I went there and, you know, like they were shining a light in my eyes and I'm like, I'm fine. Like, I'm totally fine. I can go. And so I was released and it was not a big deal. And they didn't do any kind of real tests while I was there. And actually about six months went by and I continued working. I was working at anthropology at the time and I started having kind of these weird um, things happen. And I was always working on the cash register for the most part. And I I split my time doing that and also installations for um, their displays. And so when I was working in anthropology, I would notice that when I was talking to people, I started mixing up words, words that had similar sounds, but were definitely not the same word. And I had never stuttered before in my life, and I was starting to stutter. And it was really strange, and I wasn't really sure what was causing this sort of stuff. And so it was really disorienting and um, frustrating for me, but I wasn't sure what was causing it. And there were a few things, like I was going to a chiropractor consistently, and so he would ask questions every single appointment. And when he did, one time I finally said, hey, actually, I'm having these weird side effects. Like... I have this spot in my vision that won't go away. I am smelling things that aren't there. It's like phantom smells. Like sometimes it's really great things like strawberries, and sometimes it's things like dog poop, and I cannot smell anything else. But nobody else is experiencing that. Wow. I'm also mixing up my words, and I can't think of words, and I like constantly have to be looking up words that I should know to find out if the definition means what I think it should. I, all these yeah. things. And he finally goes, I'm going to refer you to a neurologist. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So I, there was a part of me that always felt like I wasn't sure if this was real. Like, what is, yeah. are these related? What is it related to? Because, again, you, it seems like you weren't trusting yourself. No, not at all. And I wasn't very self-aware in any way, in, like, at that point. So anything like that, it was, I just disregarded. And so when I went to this neurologist, they did a bunch of testing, and they kind of determined that they thought I had lost a large portion of, like, my vocabulary. And definitely there had been significant damage due to a traumatic brain injury. And so that knowledge was very weird because I had continued doing life for a few months. Yeah, you were were high-functioning still. Yeah, and that was what was the most confusing for me because there was a lot of people in my life who would have never— known a difference, but it was significant for me. And I had always like been, language was like my thing growing up. Like I loved English. I scored super high on tests. Like that was always my thing. You wanted to be a writer. I did. And you know, like vocabulary, spelling bees all growing up, like that was what I loved. Words. I read so much. So to not have words at that point was devastating. And I started, as I started experiencing more and more things, it was like I could not find the words I was looking for. And so in the midst of all this, when my marriage was falling apart and I was depressed and felt incredibly hopeless, it rocked me even harder to not have the right words to be able to adequately express myself during that stage of life. Do you feel like you were beginning to have enough self-awareness to speak, but you just you weren't able to? Absolutely. Like wow. it was... It was becoming my depression and everything that was going on was becoming more and more unbearable for me. And I there was some tiny part of myself that just felt like there was a life 
out there that God had intended for me that I was not living. And that was soul crushing for me. And I didn't know like how to, how to become that person. And I didn't know what I needed to do to get back to the right place. And so it became more and more difficult to exist in my own life. And I didn't have the words to communicate. And I knew that if I tried to go into, you know, divorce or anything like that and go through that, I would be alienating the entire community I grew up with. Hmm. And that was devastating on an entirely new level. I was exhausted and I had no idea if I could even like withstand the like shame and judgment that I was going to experience if I decided to kind of walk away from, you know, this life that I had been living. How did you gather the strength? It happened really spontaneously. It had been two and a half years in the making or longer. I mean, it. we had been together almost five years by that point. And I had consistently felt like it was the wrong thing for me the entire time. But finally, after two and a half years of marriage, I felt like I couldn't continue to live this lie any longer. And it was just a breaking point for me. I felt like my options were to die there or get divorced. And it's hard for me to even say some of that now because it's I still have so much of the stigma that I grew up with of divorce. And it's taken me an incredibly long time to even come to a place of forgiving myself and like releasing the shame around that because you know, I I never had people in my life that really got divorced in a healthy way or had chosen themselves, you know, or chosen the life that they felt like they were supposed to live in this way. It was always shrouded in a ton of shame and judgment. And I was terrified. I was terrified of what my family would say. I was terrified of what, you know, our friends would say. I didn't know what I was going to do. I had nothing else that I was going to. I remember one day, like, just leaving. And after that, it felt like I had to be honest. I had reached my breaking point, and I felt like there was some little small place in my heart where I had this idea that regardless of what I was experiencing, there was still a hope and a future for me that I couldn't even begin to understand. And that if God was real, then maybe he was bigger than what I could understand in that moment. And maybe he was bigger than the black and white box that I had grown up putting him in. Wow. Okay. And so you get divorced. What do the next few months look like? Where do you live? What are you thinking? Do you feel a sense of hope or are you kind of still stuck in the mud of the pain and the grief and everything else that was happening? In a different way, yes. There was something that was really pure and true about speaking the things that had been inside me for so long. There was also something really terrifying about being this kind of honest with my friends and family. Um, I had family members that had no idea that we had been going through a difficult time and really couldn't believe that I was going to be making this decision. And initially, when I went to my parents, um, they didn't understand. And my mom didn't really want to support that decision. And so she had a difficult time embracing me when I came home. And I tried to move home initially, but my mom would cry every time she looked at me. And she was trying to be supportive, but she felt like it was so at odds with what she believed that she really didn't know how. 
And so I actually moved out for two months. I had a friend who told me that I could for two months live with her, which was one of the most beautiful extensions of grace I have ever received. Like one of the most beautiful gifts because it was, you know, time bound in this, like you have to figure it out, but here is a safe haven for you for two months. That's amazing. It was like the best, you know, showing of both boundaries and grace and a gift that I could have received. It was hugely generous because I don't know if you've ever been around anyone who's been in like the worst place of their life, but like it's exhausting. So like I'm, I'm so grateful for her for letting me have that place. I also think it was so wise of her to be like, you can have two minutes. <laughs> Cause like now I look back, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I was like such a shit show. Like, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Oh, yeah, here, please do. yeah. Like, I mean, it really was like, you know, you don't know up from down and it was like the darkest time. It really was awful afterwards because at that point, I lost a lot of my church community. I lost a lot of our close friends. Which was your life. It was. Like, it was totally my life. And, you know, my family didn't really understand. So I felt completely and utterly alone. And I had walked away from this thing that was, you know, at best safe and familiar and into this other territory that I really didn't even know if I was right, making the right decision. Yeah. And my friend let me stay in her guest bedroom on this deflated air mattress. And Beautiful. I just, like— I had packed a small bag of things, and I remember back to that point both being, like, one of, like, probably my rock bottom or one of my rock bottoms, but also, like, feeling like this is the beginning of something new, and I don't know what it is yet. Wow. Yeah. And so you had two months to kind of start getting your life together while you were on this deflated air mattress. <laughs> yeah. What were some of the next steps you took? What was setting you up for your future? I mean, at that point, it was, like, pure survival mode. Like, it really was pure survival mode. I um, I told myself that I didn't want to run away from any of the situation. And so I kept going to work, and I kept taking on little, like, creative jobs on the side. I worked at this coffee shop, and I would show up every day. And, you know, if you're from a small community, that one coffee shop, that one cool coffee shop is where everybody goes. Yeah. And so— one of my best friends owned it and I would go there because it felt like a safe place for me on a lot of levels, but I would also run into everybody from that church and everybody from my community. And it is a real thing when you are going through a hard time that is, it's shrouded in juicy gossip. Like, and it became a completely like awful place to exist in. And there are times in life where you're like, I think everybody's talking about me. And like, that was for sure one of them. Like, you know, we were both, you know, well known in our communities and had held places of position in our church and, you know, things like that. And so it was talked about and it was hard. And I kind of, I remember just like not knowing how I was going to get through that time. Um, but thankfully, like I moved back into my parents um, after a little while and I um, had taken a room that was upstairs in their attic, and I turned it into my little space up there. My childhood bedroom had become my dad's office. <laughs> and so I was like, all right, where else am I going to go? So I moved upstairs and created, like, a little art space studio. And I hadn't really been doing a ton of art at the time. You just kind of thought it might be... Therapeutic, good, fun. Yeah, when I was working at Anthropology, I had started helping with some of their displays and doing that. And I was doing that part time and starting to work with my hands and create had almost like opened up this other realm of expression that I forgot 
was inside me. And it was something that you mentioned earlier that you were interested in when you were a kid. Yeah. And I think that it took a backseat to, um, you know, just education and sports growing up and that kind of stuff. Like I was always super involved in a million different things. And I took art classes and I took a photography class and I did these kinds of things, but it was never the focus. Although in every job that I had done, if there was a creative thing, it was like, oh, well, maybe have Allie do it, you know, like, you know, (laughs) and so I kept finding myself taking on creative jobs in that way. Yeah, like I came back around to that at that point. And like I had said earlier, I from that accident, I felt like I couldn't use my words to really adequately express what oh, I was yeah. going through. And it was also really difficult because, you know, no one really wanted to hear the story that I was experiencing. You know, when you're in a community and it's like this heartbreak of two people that you love and a disillusion of a marriage, it becomes something that people feel like they need to pick sides on. And... We had been so private about anything that had gone on prior to that that it felt incredibly abrupt when I left, even though it had been a discussion that we had had the entire time. Totally. So I think that's part of it. When you live in one of those communities like that, it's like everything's good, everything's fine all the time. And so when we broke that, it was pretty devastating for a lot of people in our community. And so we became, um, you know, I, I had to deal with the fact that people just really didn't want to hear my side of the story. Mm. And in addition to that, I I was so exhausted from even telling like my inner circle of people that like you just have to decide at some point like is it worth even trying to go outside of that? Like I have to talk to my mom and my sisters and my dad about like what is happening in my marriage and why I'm here. And I'm exhausted by even trying to explain that to them. The intricacies of like what has gone wrong. So like Friends from high school weren't necessarily getting that intentionality, but they're still somehow involved in the story. Totally. And everybody feels entitled to knowing what's going on during those kinds of experiences. And so it was, I mean, it was absolutely heartbreaking and isolating. So in that place, I started kind of creating these mixed media pieces that um, were definitely unique to that season of my life. I've never really created anything like that since, and I didn't do it before. But it was this way of processing and creating out of, like, pain and tragedy and heartbreak and using colors and shapes to say things that I couldn't say in any other way. Fascinating. Georgia O'Keeffe has, like, this quote that I, when I found it, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so, this resonates so deeply with me. And it was that. It was like I could say things with colors and shapes that I could say in no other way, things I had no words for. And I remember being like, this is the only way that I know how to express all of the things going on in my head and heart. So. Wow. Yeah. It was crazy. Did you... In that moment of kind of feeling a sense of almost catharsis around turning all these pains and these memories and the things going on into art, was that when you decided, hey, I'm going to pursue this as a path that I can continue making art? Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, like I just kind of started doing it because I had to. Yeah. Like, and I've heard that, you know, about like, people who are writing or people who are making music or different things like you just have to create something out of this space that it's like these things are inside of you that you have to put out into the world and I wasn't creating it for anybody else it was literally because 
I needed to say this stuff and like I didn't know how else to do it. And so I was um, it was interesting. Like I, I was struggling even still with like knowing myself, knowing my own needs. And like I still was struggling with whatever was going on inside me. So one of the parts of like this process that I would do was sometimes like taking photos of myself and like in the midst of like the most painful moments. And then I would sketch kind of like a version of what that looked like and incorporate that into some layer of these mixed media pieces. So some of them were like real moments that were happening in my life at that time mixed with words that were really important to me that I had found in other places and colors and just abstract things that all felt like they were part of these vignettes of my life that I didn't know how to explain to anybody. And as I did that, I just created so many pieces like this. Like there's this whole, I don't even know, there's probably like 30 pieces of mixed media stuff that are hanging in my parents' attic still. That's amazing. um, That are from this time in my life. And it, it was hugely healing for me. Okay, so I know you went to art school, but, you know, up until this point, you're just making art in your parents' attic. Help me bridge this gap from, you know, this place you're at to, you know, actually going to school for art. Yeah, so I definitely didn't think that that was going to lead to art school. Um, I went on a spontaneous trip with a friend to Chicago. Which is great. All good things start with a spontaneous trip to Chicago. Yes, (laughs) I had never been to Chicago. It was one of those cities that I think you kind of like have in some distant dream of like, maybe I'll go there one day. Yeah. Knew nothing about it. Got there and felt like maybe the city could be a fit for me. Hmm. And there was a lot of things that all were conspiring at the same time. And just one of those undeniable experiences where you're like, okay, every door is opening. I think this could be my next place. Like, I think this could be the next chapter in this story. And um, so I went back. And as soon as I flew back into Sacramento, I drove home and it felt like everywhere I was looking, like on the drive back to my parents' house, that it just didn't fit anymore. Like this place wasn't home in the same way. It was almost a year after I had been separated and I just, it was time for me to go. I needed a new story for myself. And so I just trying to think of like, okay, how do I get to Chicago? (laughs) Like (laughs) what could I say that my parents will buy into and think is a good idea for why I should move across the country and do this thing that I have really no reason to do otherwise? So I was like, maybe art school? I Brilliant. Knew nothing about the art schools <laughs> in Chicago, like at all. I didn't look at art schools when I was out there. I didn't, I mean, nothing. I just had a good time when I was in Chicago. Yeah. And so I, um, I came back home and I looked up all the different art schools. There was a few of them. I sent like a scattershot of like applications to them. I knew nothing about them, like I said. I got an email back from one of them that was like, there's a portfolio day in San Francisco for one of them. And I didn't have a portfolio. I knew nothing about portfolios or what you're supposed to put in a portfolio. So I took a few photos on my phone and they were just like photos of like the canvases hanging on my parents' walls. (laughs) That's amazing because I remember, I think I applied to art schools when I was in high school and people do like all this fancy stuff to like scan in their their giant pieces of work. And oh yeah, they hire people to do it, and you're just like, here's an iPhone photo of yeah, something like on my wall that. in the attic. Yep, I had no idea that like there was a way that you did portfolio. I mean, I like knew that there was a way you did portfolios. I didn't know what that way was. Yeah, 
And so I remember distinctly taking a picture of my computer screen that had some old project on the screen. So, like, it wasn't oh even gosh. just, like, mixed media pieces that were on my walls. It was, like, pictures of my computer screen that had a photo on it. And, like, this was – I probably took, like, 15 or 20 different photos like that. And so I went to go there, and, like, even before I got there, I was like, yeah, you know, I don't know. I might go get some nachos somewhere. (laughs) Like, literally drove in the opposite direction because I was trying to, like, convince myself that, like, this wasn't a big deal. Was it almost like a self-sabotage at this point, or? Yeah, I think so. Like, I think it was one of those (laughs) things where you're like, yeah, this would probably be a good thing for me to go to. I'm, like, completely unprepared, so, like, I probably shouldn't. But I'll just go and check it out anyway. There's, like— you know, no cost to it for Yeah, me. yeah. You were kind of making it as low-key as possible. As low-key as possible. I'll just swing by the portfolio <laughs> review. Yeah, yep, I'll just, like, do that. It's, like, a couple hours away in this place, and I got there. And um, I don't think I had a phone charger, like, a car charger in my phone. So my phone had no battery at this point. Oh, my point. gosh. And I'm sitting there going, this is the only place that I have any kind of like showing of what I've created is Your on my phone. Your portfolio is dying. Yeah, my portfolio is dying. It's like dwindling. And where it was was like, you know, it's at Fort Mason and it. my phone was just constantly searching for signal. So my battery is just rapidly going further and further down. And I see this video for this school. And as I'm watching it, I know, like I said, I knew nothing about it. I just went. And they're showing this intro video for this school, and I'm realizing I am so far out of my league. (laughs) Like, Walt Disney went to School of the Art Institute. You know, like, they named off all of their famous alumni, and I'm, like, sitting there going, oh, my gosh, like, what am I doing here? And so after that goes, goes through, like, I was sitting in the room, and I remember I had signed up. I got there actually kind of on time, and where I was in the lineup, like, they should have called me for the portfolio review, and I was planning on just going in, and even though I didn't want them to review it, I still wanted to be like, hey, like, let me show you some stuff I made. Could you, like, tell me what I should include and not include? Yeah. And as I'm sitting in this room, like, it's fewer and fewer people that are there, and I'm finally, like, getting to the last few people. I have six... Like, my phone completely dies at one point. (laughs) And I asked the kid next to me, and I'm like, hey, like, could I plug my phone into your computer and get a little bit of battery? And I legitimately had 6% battery on my phone when I was the last person in this room. And I just, like, walk up to the desk, and I'm like, hey, like, no one called my name. Um, Is there, like... Is it, I don't know. I think I think I got forgotten. Like oh. I know, and so I'm like sitting there and saying that, and they're like, ah. which is good because I mean you're being assertive here. Like it's not it's no longer low key. You're like taking more and more action. Yeah, totally. The last one in the room, and then I'm like, um, excuse me, like did you forget about me? That was oh. as assertive as I got at that moment. And um, but I went over there and like asked, and otherwise it was just going to get awkward. They were like yeah. starting to shut down, <laughs> and so um, I get brought back and I start talking talking to this girl and she's asking me questions and oh by the way while I was sitting in this portfolio review people are walking out of their meetings crying oh my god like they have brought in portfolio cases that are incredibly prepared they've worked on this their whole lives oh probably. yeah they like went to high schools that this was the prep like they did completely like they were prepared for this so I'm sitting there just like wondering why I'm there And so by the time I walk in, I, like, for sure not going to get approved for this thing, but, like, (laughs) I'm just going to show her and ask questions and find out what I can do so, like, in the future I'll know what to do. 
And she starts looking at my phone and these pictures on my phone, and she's taking it incredibly seriously. And I'm like, thank you, Um, you know, asking me to tell her about, like, the concepts that are in this thing and, you know, that I already have a degree, but, like, I just want to take studio classes in this undergrad thing because it was fun for me. And she's trying to convince me to take, like, a grad program. And I'm like, no, thanks. I, like, literally just want to take studio classes and make some stuff. And she slowly just looks at me and is like, you have a portfolio and I'm I'm approving it. Wow. And I just kind of sat there going, this? Like, this counts? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> like, okay, I think this is the hard part of this application. So I remember, like, driving back and I drove back across the Bay Bridge and I remember being elated thinking, holy shit, I just got into art school from pictures on my phone of my computer screen of other pictures. <laughs> like, I don't think this is how people do this. But, like, it was one of those moments in life where you're just like, I think this is what's supposed to happen. Like, And did it feel right? It did. Like, it just felt like everything opened up, and it was, like, the first time I felt hope in a long time. Wow. It had been a year after I'd been separated. It was, like, for the first moment, it was, like, wow, there's, like, another part of this story. Like, there's something else that's going to happen with my life. Like, I don't, can't even imagine what it's going to be right now. Wow. And so bring me up to speed to what you're doing today because that's beautiful and that's hopeful. And I got to know you when I didn't know that you had a dark history. You know, I, I didn't know that you'd had all these things happen to you. When I met you, I was just like, oh, Allie makes beautiful art and she's a hopeful, happy person. <laughs> you know, tell me, you know, and obviously that's a first impression, but help bring me up to speed into that moment. Yeah. I think that the thing that I took away from creating those things in my parents' attic was realizing the potential um, that art has and creation in general has for healing and to use those things as a message for whatever it is that you are processing through. So for me, it was like never really about the aesthetic about all of that stuff. It was so much more about the processing and the process, which um, was really awesome. Like when I went to art school, they're a very conceptual school. And so like they're process based and everything is about that, which really enabled me to understand like the journey is the destination in like layman's terms of it where it's like I don't know where I'm going but like where I am right now is really important and that was the thing that I realized like throughout my whole process like with everything that I experienced with divorce with depression I didn't hear very many voices of people who were actually in process talking about what they were experiencing And I wanted that. I was so desperate for voices of people who were just like in the middle of the mess, but were still navigating it well. And I I wanted that so desperately that I wanted to be able to be that in the midst of like whatever it was that I was going through. And so I think that that's kind of how I started creating things. It transformed from being, you know, mixed media pieces that are on canvas in my parents' attic to, you know, different projects I was taking on or Instagram. And, I mean, Instagram was started in, like, 2010, I think, which was the year that I actually, like, 
got separated and divorced. And so, like, from there, it was, like, this very natural place that could be a collection of the things I was experiencing. And I was able to post these moments and memories and musings of my life. And I realized that there were other people who were going through similar things as I was. And I so desperately needed that Me Too collective exhale that, you know, community can offer you. And that's what I found there. And that's what was really beautiful about being able to create and post publicly in that way. And it was, it's been a really incredible journey for me to like continue living in that messy middle space and just be honest about what I'm experiencing. I know that that's not easy. It's way easier to talk about these things in hindsight. And so to be in the middle of that, you know, I, I can't imagine. Yeah, it's become more and more comfortable for me. Good. Um, because I think that so much of my life, I didn't realize how um, much of a people pleaser I was. And I think that there is something incredibly liberating that happens when you disappoint basically everyone in your life. Um, it is both the most incredible freedom and also like a rock bottom that I wouldn't wish on anybody. But in that space, you really find the opportunity to say things honestly that I just never had before. I had spent so much of my life constructing this image of who I wanted to be and who I thought others thought I should be that I forgot to figure out how to talk about who I really was. And so I think that in Instagram world and in social media and any kind of place like that, even just in real life, we want to project this I have it all figured out image and that really is none of us. <laughs> so, the, I mean, I had a friend who told me, like, nobody's cool. And, like, that's the truest <laughs> thing I know. Like, everybody who, you know, the coolest people I know also know that they're not cool. <laughs> and like 100%. 100%. Like, think about yourself in junior high. Like, no junior higher is cool. We all go through some awkward phase. And we all have these things that are just, like, really ugly about ourselves. But that's actually the most, like, redemptive, beautiful thing and the most universal thing about us and our humanity. So I just, like, I want people to feel more free to, like, express that. And I think that if I can be a voice that helps encourage others or gives them permission to say more of their own, like, messy, like, shit, I want to be. I want to be like, hey, like, I don't have it figured out. It's okay if you don't either. It's okay if you don't know if what you're doing is right right now. You might not know for another five or ten years or ever, but, like, that's okay. And, like, that's just what life is. Like, we, I'm not sure we ever really know those things. And it's about, like, living in those questions and, and being okay with that. How are you feeling today? You know, we talk about, you know, being in the middle of things and sharing things while you're in the midst of it. You know, what does that look like for you in 2018? I love that question because last week I found myself a couple weeks into the new year and wondering what I wanted to look like. I didn't know what I was going to do for work this year, what I want my life to look like, where I want to live, where, you know, anything. There's so many questions I currently have about how 2018 is going to unfold. And I think from there, like a couple weeks into 2018, 
freaking out about my life and not knowing what I wanted to do, having this like not even midlife crisis, just another crisis. And I think that is kind of the thing that happens sometimes. Like I felt really lost. I wasn't sure what where I'm going. And that's the thing I kind of have to keep showing up for. Like is what I'm doing working? Do I like what I'm doing. I don't know. Like I have to continually ask myself those questions and it's messy, but I, I love that reflection. It's beautiful that you're being introspective, that you're diving in. You're saying you're, you're listening to yourself. Yeah. And like when you asked me to be on this, I remember thinking, I don't know what I can share with people at this stage (laughs) of my life. Like at this, in this moment and in this phase, I'm like, I don't know. I feel pretty lost myself. Like not that you know, I think overall in the trajectory of life, it's like I have things that I care about, things that I love. I know I know a lot more about myself. I've done a lot of growing. I'm not in like a rock bottom stage. But at the same time, I'm like, I don't know. I'm lost on a lot of levels and I'm probably moving soon. And it's just like a lot of transition and different th- chaos. So it's like, OK, well, what is it that I'm going to say? I don't know. But I, like, also love that. And, like, the people that I am closest to that I'm the most honest with when I was saying, like, here's my fear about coming in and talking about this. I don't have my shit together. And they all looked at me and, like, kind of laughed and were like, (laughs) but that's why we love you. And, like, that's who you are is, like, you don't have all the answers, but, like, you make us feel like it's okay to not have the answers. Ooh, that's beautiful. And so, like, that was really important to me. And, like, that's what it is. It's in progress. I'm in progress. I don't have, like, these things where I'm like, this is my pitch. This is what my platform is. This is what I do. It's, like, it's a constant process of where I'm at, this messy middle of, like, living life and just, like, talking about it because I know that there are other people in that same place. I've been in that place where I've just been desperate to hear somebody else talking about, like, the mundane parts of life that they still don't know how to figure out. Who do they want to be when they grow up? How are they going to pay rent? How are they going to create something meaningful with their skills and talents, you know, and gifts? How are we going to tell our stories in a way that actually matters? And I think that is, like, those are the things that I'm consumed with, and I know that it's, like, collective thing. So I try to just be okay with that, <laughs> even when it, like, feels really chaotic and messy to be in it myself. Okay, and one more thing before we wrap up that I wanted to make sure we talk about is I love this thing that you do, the Fun Mail Club. That was one of the first things that my wife Sammy showed me when you know she was showing me your Instagram. She's like, check out this really cool thing that this girl Allie does where she sends people mail. Tell me a little bit about how that began because that's really cool and also what it is. <laughs> Thanks. Um, That kind of began like everything else in my life, a little bit unintentionally. And um, I was living in Santa Barbara, unsure how I was going to pay rent. And if anything I can say for myself, like I'm scrappy. Like (laughs) it's while other people are, you know, really intentional and deliberate about the way that they unroll things in their life. I'm like, I don't know. Let's just try this and see if it works. So one day I was trying to figure out how to make some extra cash. And I put online on Instagram, I said, hey, like, uh, if you send me $25, I'll send you an envelope full of fun things. That's so sketchy and amazing. Super sketchy. And I had no idea what I was going to put in those envelopes at the time. Like, I posted it just being like, I don't know, like, I will make it really fun for people. 
Um, before that, I had a friend. She and I were like, we actually said, leave us your um, your emails and we'll send you fun mail for free. And 400 people signed up oh for it. Oh, my gosh. And we were shocked. Like, we were totally shocked that there were 400 people who just wanted to receive mail and fun things. Stamps and aren't free, though. Stamps are not free. We <laughs> learned that after 400 people signed up. I learned that with making a newspaper. Yeah, and that's what I love about you, too. I mean, I think that it's funny. We both are, like, sending things very old school, like, using the internet to send old school mail. I just saw that one of the biggest envelope companies in the entire world went out of business this month. No. So it's a weird time to be sending things in the mail. It really is. and I, But I think that's the connection that people want. Like, that's the we live so much online digitally and we connect digitally so when you are holding something in your hands that somebody else has created it kind of like transcends that digital world even if you're using it as part of this medium and like that was what was fascinating originally to me with this was like I'm going to use the internet to connect me in real life with people I'm meeting on the internet. Mm. And I also know the power of getting a letter in the mail. You know, I know what it is like to go to your mailbox and not just like open bills, but to get this like brightly colored thing from someone who has like put it together with their own hands. Like there are other humans that are putting these things together. And I I wanted to do that. And so, I mean, originally it did start as this thing where it was like, I need to pay rent. Leave your PayPal email in the comments and I will send you an invoice. And that is legitimately how it started. But I've been doing it for four years now as of wow. March. That's and unreal. It's totally taken on a life of its own. Like now it we um, we really go with themes. I love to collaborate with people. I love to introduce like the people who follow what I do to artists that I love and friends that I have and just like really try to hit on themes that I think are important. And so it and you're might you're be. sharing your process, it sounds like too. Totally. You know, yeah. So much of what I do and the themes are like things I'm experiencing during my own life and going, okay, like one of the Instagrams that has received the most traction that I've posted in the last few years has been this thing called like let yourself rest. I did that because I was processing that myself. Like I was always exhausted. I was always like running myself ragged trying to do this whole hustle thing and it wasn't working for me. And it was like this idea of like give yourself grace, like let yourself rest. And I posted that and so many people resonated with it that it was like whoa, like we really need to take a step back and just like check in with ourselves. And so, like, one of the things I try to do with mail, like, this theme was, like, for January is, like, a thoughtful beginning. Like, I want people to think about (laughs) – I'm putting this out in the world because I felt like I needed that this year and I didn't do a great job of it. So I'm like, I'm going to create things that help me both reflect and dream for the future. So, like, the pieces of that mail this month are, like, think about your last year. What, what, What are you most proud of? Like, what is this? Like, how do you facilitate time in the future for those things? And, like, that's the kind of stuff that I hope, like, it's a moment in people's lives and in their days when they come home and they see this envelope and they know that they can, like, just, like, actually spend a couple moments, like, reflecting and being quiet and not being staring at a screen, but, like, being inspired in a different way. If you could leave people, you know, after hearing your story, after hearing what you do, with one thought, you know, one idea that has been a game changer in your story or or even more so continues to be a game changer in your story, what do you think that that would be? I think the biggest game changer for me was when I started paying attention to the voice that I 
always had inside me and never trusted. And the way that I began to find my voice was by creating things out of that space. And I think that the best thing that anyone can really do to really tap into that is to create out of that place. Like, and it doesn't matter what it is that you're creating. It doesn't matter if it's actually making things or not. It's finding something that you love and expressing it in a way that is not just in your head. And to like really start using the things that you feel strongly about and are experiencing in your own life to like connect with others. And there's so much connection that's possible in this world. But like we have to actually draw that out of ourselves to be able to connect with other people. And everybody can feel a moment that's genuine. Everybody knows when they're tapping into something that's really real. And I think the harder things to say out loud are also the things that are the most connecting with our humanity, with the other humans in our lives. And it allows you both compassion and empathy and grace for yourself and with others when you're actually able to like do that for yourself and see it in others. It just like allows you to understand our own humanity. And I think that is been the biggest game changer for me personally. I've heard this idea that deep pain carves the way for great joy. And I feel like that's one of the wildest and truest parts of Allie's story. Her story reminds me that when we begin truly healing, we find ourselves plopped right back on the right path, the one we were on before the disruptions began. Let's all follow Allie's example and show up as we are. We already have so much inside of us that needs to be said, and people will listen once they've found that voice amidst the struggle. If you want to learn more about Allie and discover the incredible work she's currently a part of, check her out on Instagram. I'm telling you, at Allie Makes Things on Instagram. Definitely check that out. And visit her website, AllieMakesThings.com. And as a part of that, please do yourself a favor and join her Fun Mail Club subscription. Like Allie said, it's basically Birchbox, but for hand-lettered art prints. That means that at least once a month, Something beautiful, thoughtful, and inspiring will show up in your mailbox. It's so delightful, and I highly encourage you to sign up. If you're new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around. I feel like if you liked this conversation, you would also love our conversations with author and illustrator Mira Lee Patel about making friends with your fears, and with Jenna Kutcher, who cares about showing something deeper than perfect online. This podcast is created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good, 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 a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. Chad Michael Snavely and the team at CM Studio edit and mix the show, and Christy Karenbrock offers production support. You can get lots of hope stories on social media by following us everywhere at Good, Good, Good CO. And honestly, I think this is the time to make sure that you're following because we have some exciting things coming up. And of course, we'll announce them right here on the podcast, but the podcast only comes out every Monday, which means there's six other days in the week for us to share amazing, exciting things that are coming up. And I promise you, you're not going to want to miss them. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Go out there and do what you've always wanted to do. Don't withhold your talent and voice from the world. 
give it all you've got. Sound good? 